Welcome to the Anxiety Lab. I'm Sagar Bhatt. I currently have two fists in the air right now. I guess I'm, I'm trying to get pumped up for this intro. Does it feel pumped up? Can you tell the fists are up? All right, I'm putting them down. Hello, I'm so glad you're here. And I'm excited to bring you this episode with Jessie Juntarafe. She is a therapist and author, and you know she's very versed in mindfulness and Buddhist wisdom, yet in her background as a therapist, we're able to talk about getting to know ourselves, getting to know our stress and working with anxiety in a very pragmatic way. And one of my favorite segments that I've had on any episode is, is I think, the back half of this one where we get into decision-making anxiety. Uh, I, I loved some of the things she said on her website about this, and I wanted to have her on to talk about it. We also talk about lots of other things anxiety-related and also, we, we talk about the question, I, I've gotten this question for this podcast, and it is a common question with regards to self-loathing, which is like, doesn't a little bit of hating myself and kicking my own ass help me achieve certain goals, you know, in a way that that's justified? And, and so we unpack that a little bit. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. You can find Jesse at J-E-S-S-E dash Junta, that's G-I-U-N-T-A dash rafe r-a-f-e-h dot com uh, lots of great resources on her website you could also find her book on amazon it's called life launch a roadmap to extraordinary adulthood speaking of decision making one of my points of obsession with decision making and and i'm aware that this is incredibly privileged to be able to fret about this stuff but i'm, I'm always obsessed about kind of the perfect dose of caffeine like what should i do an aggressive maybe cold brew this morning, or maybe I'll go lighter and then work out midday and then have an espresso in the afternoon. I'm, I'm always looking for that perfect combination of chemical enhancement and, and assuming that one of these combinations is really going to be the ticket to a magical life. One beer a week, is that right? What's right? And, and so we talk about that a little bit. I mean, by the way, there's no shortage of, of big... Uh, anxiety over big decisions and things like death, disease, moving jobs, whatever, relationships, all that stuff is there too. But right now I'm, I'm this morning, I, my, my decision was, okay, I have some single origin beans. This is, I guess this is for the coffee nerds. I have some single origin beans, Ethiopian from a local roastery. This is Mod Cup in Jersey City. It's odd that I, you know, I've lived in New York City for about how long now? I, I, 14 years now. And, and some of the best coffee I've had is in Jersey City. I, I hate to say, but it's true. Mod Cup. Uh, I'm not going to spell it out because they don't yet sponsor the episode, but look it up. Uh, I'm currently dealing with some Ethiopian single origin beans. They have some apricot and peach flavor notes. But the decision this morning was, do, okay, do I want to brew it at home? But I'm kind of feeling a cup from outside. I want like an egg and cheese. And then, and then with that, I'd like to pair a dark roast so then I got the dark roast from the coffee shop, got home, and I was like, this isn't as good. It's cold, too. It's not as good. I should have just made it at home. But then I just I made the best of it. I just enjoyed it for what it was and was okay with the imperfection. And that's, that's the lesson today is, is landing in just that feeling of being okay. That they, it, It's more the fear of the imperfection than it is the imperfection that, that's causing me the harm most of the time. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Hopefully there's some people out there for whom that rant really resonates in terms of the finer nuances of decision anxiety. And for other people, breathe a sigh of relief because the rant's over. And I'm going to send you right away to this amazing episode with Jesse Juntarafe. Here we go. Thanks for being here. Hello, I'm here with Jesse Juntarafe, JGR. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And how's your day going? Let's start with the day. Um, the day is going pretty good. I was never a morning person, but I went on a meditation retreat last week, actually. So my body is now accustomed to getting up at 5.30 a.m. And so a lot more has happened than would have in the past by 10.30 a.m. <laughs> so w which meditation center was this? 
Well, so I did it on Zoom. I rented an oh. Airbnb, but I was on Zoom with Inside LA. I see. Yeah, I like I did an insight in Barrie, Massachusetts last year and I was signed up to to go again. It was, it was like two days before or two days after all of the shit went down and everything was locked down. And and I kind of yeah, I don't know. Last year it was a profound experience and I'm a little bit just longing for the the type of mindset I could have had going into COVID. I know. Well, you know, I was resisting because I was I I was signed up for something in May too, too, and I was resisting doing Zoom because I run my whole business on Zoom, and I was like, I'm going to now sign up to be on Zoom eight hours a day to meditate. That sounds horrible. I was wrong. It was awesome. It was completely different because my eyes were closed 90% Mm -hmm. of the time and I got to the same place, if not better, by just getting to be completely alone, I think. It offered something different. Well, I commend you for going on those. A, because you're a therapist, right? Yes. So my my sense is, as someone in your profession, it's you, you could probably go on autopilot if you really had to. Yes. And and maybe not really live the work. Yes. And and I've seen many therapists over the years. I don't I wouldn't accuse any particular one of faking it, but it's my understanding that it, it wouldn't be terribly hard and it could still be helpful because you you know a lot intellectually. Yes. So I, I'm just that is just to say hats off to really doing that because it, it doesn't necessarily always reveal itself in some quantifiable gain. That's right. I mean, I think ultimately I know it, like if I know I'm going into my sessions, not giving my best, I don't like the feeling of that. But also one of my favorite parts about my job is that going on a meditation retreat, listening to an interesting self-help book. I love self-growth and all that kind of stuff. And so now I get to go, well, it's for my career. I mean, honey, I have to go meditate for a week because I'm just not going to be as good. I love the fact that it pushes me to be the best version of me at all times. So, Yeah, that's that's so cool. I mean, would you say that your pursuit of, you know, the wisdom of growth – is a result of, you know, just your own process with working on yourself? Yes. I, so I went through a really tough time when I was a teenager. My cousin, who I was really close to, committed suicide when I was 14. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Yeah, and it was tough. But um, from that, I went to a lot of shitty therapists. Oh, excuse my language. No, you can say that. (laughs) They were shitty. Okay, they were shitty. And... And then I found one that really changed my life. And what I got from her was not only I figured out how to have my own inner peace and happiness and different kind of relationship with my parents, but I also loved the process of therapy and self-growth and introspection. And so I was like a nerdy student going to therapy, asking her, what book do I read next? What, what books do they have you read in grad school? So even before I was out of high school, I was just drawn to psychology. Because it feels essential. It's like, it's like I it have a, to know it, this. It was a, yeah, it was essential, and then it just turned into a complete passion. I always say I have two passions in life. There's snowboarding, and there's, like, and there's growth and psychology. I yeah. love both those things. So. And, and, you know, they're not entirely separate when no. <laughs> snowboarding is at its best, I assume. Exactly. That's when I'm I'm at my best as well. So, actually, I, I totally just lost my train of thought. Um, wow, you're catching me in some real-time anxiety in the anxiety laboratory. Uh, yeah, I got to be honest. This is, to be fully upfront, this is one of the early episodes I'm recording. And I'm still a little bit in my head. I'll perhaps always be in my head. But in this regard... Uh, you know, there's this intimate conversation in podcasting, yet I'm aware that it's being broadcast, hopefully to other people. And, and it's a little bit trippy. I'll say too, whenever you're doing anything new, like then, then it's almost like you have an audience doing it. My first year as a therapist, my goal was just to get myself a hundred percent in the room because the whole time I would be not only talking to my client, but my mind would be talking to me going, 
have I sat in this position too long? Was that the right question? Yeah. Wow. You know, did they just notice that I had an itch on my head the whole time? And then the more and more I did it, the more I knew what was going to happen and I got comfortable and I saw people get better. So I wasn't worried about it. And I imagine in a similar way, I mean, it's different doing a podcast, but it's kind of a similar thing. How am I relating to you? What is the audience going to relate to? That's the story of my life. You know, even if I'm walking down the street by myself, it's like, am I walking weird? Am I arm swinging too? You know, I'm in my thirties now. You'd think by now I'd know how, how much to swing my arms, but I don't know anything. So, so let me ask you this then. So that voice of, am I sitting in the right position? Is it still there? It's just dimmer. Yeah. Or is so, it gone? So, um, tough question. Sometimes it's completely gone when I'm doing the things that I'm the most confident about and the most clear about. So when I'm with my clients now, it's pretty silent. That's part of what I love about my job is I'm able to just be in the room with them and be completely present. It's also gone when I'm the connection, right? I'm just there for them. It doesn't matter about me. So now once I got the confidence to know when I started my career, I would do one hour and I would be exhausted. (laughs) And then my colleagues would go, don't worry, it gets better. And I go, why is it going to get better? I'm not, I don't want to care less. But I realized it's not that I care less over time. What happened is I cared less about me. <laughs> like I, the more we're insecure or um, not feeling confident, then we're thinking about what we're doing. But once we have confidence, then we can. it enables us to be completely present and with the other person. So that's what happened over time yeah, with my clients. Because the connection begins to dominate yes. the awareness naturally yes but and then, yes go no I, I was gonna say so like it it it's funny you say that because that highlights the connection between when we're insecure is almost when we're the most self-obsessed that's right and and it's a ironic mind fuck yeah a little bit because yes. the more we care the crappier we feel yet it's all very self-centered yes the more we care about ourselves, like people who mm. have a depressed family member always like to come in and go like, they're so self-centered. I'm like, of course they're self-centered. They have to spend all their energy just figuring out where to find the will to live and survive and not feel crappy. So the, the better we feel emotionally, the more space we have to focus out. The, the worse we feel, the more that energy goes in. And then, and then it sucks because when I was a depressed teenager, all I wanted was for people to tell me like how great and lovable I was, but no one wanted to tell me that because I was a pain in the ass to be around. Then as soon as I overcame my depression and I became confident and I didn't need compliments, everyone was complimenting me, you know, because... Yeah. So it's it's a catch twenty two. I call it like yeah. you could either be stuck in a negative momentum loop or a positive one. And I right, like to try right. to key into the positive one as much as possible. Yeah, which is why I like your term it sucked, because it really it has a sucking power. The more yeah. you're self-obsessed, and obviously there's circumstances where we need to allow that and you know, we deserve compassion from those around us. But over time, it can just become an automatic mechanism of just thinking of self first and kind of building out this entire world of what I have to be. And all of these fears of I'm crappy, I'm worthless. And they just feel so real that we have to obsess over them. And again, I think compassion is, for me, what I'm learning is the most skillful response to those types of feelings, because it's telling myself that I'm just being self-centered is just going to cause more shame. I have to kind of get to, well, why am I self-centered? Why do I need to feel important right now? Why am I making this conversation with this other person about me? The attitude towards self is the most critical of... Of everything. I would say of everything. The more you cultivate a relationship with yourself of compassion and empathy and understanding and love, the more that just radiates off of you. People want to connect to you. People want to be with you. Because ultimately, I believe, I mean, it's going to sound a little hippy-dippy, but we're all beautiful souls. Like, if you strip away all the defenses and all the crap that gets in the way and all the negative self-talk at the root, all of us are beautiful people. And so the more we can show everybody and ourselves who that is, 
the more happy, fulfilled, successful we become. Yeah. And I think meditation is one of those things or, you know, just stillness is something that most readily or stillness is something that helps me kind of encounter that, that basic goodness. Yes. And, and I think from there I can relate to myself. So let's say last night I was with a friend and then it, it dawns on me. I talked the whole time. I didn't let him get a word in. Often I do that. And, and at the time I, I feel like I'm on fire. He's eating up every word. And then later I'm like, no, I was just annoying. And so I could, I could look back and be like, Sagar, you're, you narcissist, God damn you. And that's just going to keep this cycle of shame alive. It might help in the short term where next time I'll kind of force myself. But I think the healthier attitude is, wow, I must, you know, poor me that I'm this wrapped up in my own story and fixated on people really hearing me or needing to see me a certain way. You know, the fact that I need this so much means that in some way I'm suffering. And well, let's look. Actually, it's true. I am suffering. If I look at all the pain that's swimming around in my mind, all of the negative thoughts and, you know, and then I could really open up to the entire experience instead of just more, more kind of berating myself. And then from that place of nurturing the part of me that's, that feels deficient, sometimes nurturing is just being aware of it and saying, Hey, I see you. Then it it feels less critical to take up all this airtime in front of people. And ironically, I'm I'm the one going on and on about this in front of you, um, but that's just a contradiction I'll have to accept. But I like it because I feel like you're just coming into your... I'm sorry, you're cutting out there for a second. Oh, I was just saying I like that you're going into it because it just feels like you're figuring it out as you talk, which is probably part of your process. That's that's probably the other that's probably <laughs> the other thing why yeah. if you have good friends and they know that about you, then they're in for the journey because they want to see you get to where you go. And sometimes you might need to talk it out loud and they're and they're in it. Right. I th- I mean the friends who I have now kind of are I'm able to uh, give them kind of these types of reflections and this side of me. But I think the friends I had in my twenties, I, I, you know, God bless them for just sitting there and listening to me go on and on about things and just not asking questions, not giving a shit about anything that anyone else is saying. Just when someone's talking, I'm just nodding my head, thinking of the next smart question that I'm going to ask in order to make myself look smart. Or if I'm listening to someone, if I'm on a date, I'm just patting myself on the back for look how great of a listener I'm being. In which case, I'm obviously not listening. Uh, so many dates went went by like that, and my my current or my girlfriend uh, is is you know that was one of the great first dates because I was just so upfront about all of this, and she really engaged with me on that level of you know my need to be seen. And, you know, she was critical at moments. She called me out at one point that I think you're just talking just to talk soccer. And then that was, and the fact that I was able to just not harden up and be defensive in that moment, I was able to just loosen, I think really got us off on the right foot in a relationship because we started from a place of connecting. Yeah. And she was real with you. She cared enough to be real. You know, right, like right. not just to go like, oh, well, he talks too much about himself. He's out. She she wanted you to get something from that. Dude. Yeah, because she saw maybe she saw something beneath that or she did. Yeah, she better have. God I'm damn sure it. she did. She wouldn't have committed to you if she didn't. I also want to add this piece into this conversation, which is that there's a reason why we're all negative to ourselves. Like our mind is actually not designed to be happy. It's de- it, we've out evolved it. So it's come from a time when the most important thing is that we stay alive. We were in the jungle and the most important thing was that we didn't get eaten by a tiger, right. that we didn't starve to death and that we were accepted by our tribe so that we were protected and had resources. So the best state, emotional state to be in, to stay alive, is to be hyper vigilant, a little bit anxious, and assessing danger. That's not a peaceful state. So in order to go up, when you were asking me like 10 minutes ago, well, is your mind quiet all the time? No, because it's still looking for holes to come in and put Mm. me in that state. It's just that the way I relate to it is I don't give it the same validity that I used to. 
in my 20s. In my 30s, I was like, right. oh, you're there to protect me. So you're just searching around for what button you can push inside of me to get me into that hypervigilant anxious state. Yeah. I'm going to thank you for that, but I'm and be compassionate towards that, mm. but I don't need to take that on. Yeah. I mean, would you all, I, and I, I think that's beautifully said, just this animalistic survival impulse, but obviously the gamut could run very wide in terms of someone's parental upbringing and to what extent these qualities are exacerbated. You know, the shame dynamic is at a fever pitch for some people, whereas for others. Yeah, you're right that the that the so the first outer layer is the survival instinct that we all have. And then the next layer is the environment that we currently have and how intense that was and how aligned that was with a meeting our with meeting our emotional needs is then going to directly impact the severity of anxiety and stuff that we have to go through. I'm just saying that even if you're, even my kid would go through stuff, their minds are going to talk negative to them. Even if I tried my best with all my knowledge, it's going to be there. Maybe not as severe as you, if your mom wasn't there, but it's, it's part of the human experience is what I would say. Right, right. I mean, and this is where meditation is so helpful because it's it enables me to see, to really hone in on thought patterns that are directly related to experiences. Like a kid growing up, I remember one time he was, he was at my house, someone who bullied me, but someone who was also around, you know, family friend. Uh, we were, yeah, just, I guess, playing ping pong in my basement. And he just was so mean to me. And he called me a piece of shit and was just trash talking and... Like that still rattles around in my brain and it happens, you know, below my radar of awareness when I'm not aware. Now that I'm paying attention to all of these subtle kind of mental things happening, I could, I could, I could detect it. And when I detect it, I'm like, holy shit, that's been there for a long, long time. And of yeah. course it's informing my sense of self. So that's what I mean when I say, you know, the environment is also very powerful. I mean, I'm an only child. So like, you know, I had a lot of these Me couple too. bullying voices. Oh yeah. <laughs> that, that'll be our next episode. Um, so I, I had a lot of these bullying voices and not a lot of other voices. It's tough. The first key is awareness, like you said. And then the second key, it sounds like you're already on the path is I like to, because I have some of that stuff too. I like to imagine myself as a small child when I hear those kind of voices. And then I just take care of myself almost in my imagination as if, as if I'm back in that time. And it helps because stuff gets stuck uh, on the right side of our brain. And unless we directly address it, a lot of times, like you said, it could go on for years, years and years and years rattling around unless we face it and figure out how to heal it in a different way. Right. And yeah, this, this kind of current notion of that's been brought into maybe more mainstream culture through Buddhism and mindfulness of we are not what's happening necessarily in our minds or it's not as true. Yes. And you just think about for, for so long how often we identify with that stuff. And, and then so years and years, this stuff just ends up being true until one day it's not. And then again, it's it's that recursive process because it's not just okay, so I had a breakthrough in therapy. I'm, I'm realizing that, okay, well, this bully's voice is just a voice that I have kind of fused into my own. It, it doesn't define who I am. Not only that, but it's, as it's happening right now, a, a complete dream. And so I could, I could kind of destroy it in many ways, yet it still has profound power. It, it's this process of continuing to maybe calm myself, use the tools the way that you articulated you know, tune into the present and, and offer that self-love. Exactly. Yeah. And then for me, it's like I'll one day regress, as I said, and then be in like a shame spiral on a rant. Like yesterday, I, it hit me out of nowhere. I, there was just a shame, shame spiral of something a relative said to me a couple of years ago. It was around the time my dad died. And this, this person just said something that was a little bit not compassionate. And I just got all worked up again. And and then there could be that second layer of shame where I'm like, 
Sagar, how many hours have you spent meditating? How many years have you been on in therapy? How many meditation retreats have you gone on? And you're still stuck on this dude. What the hell is wrong with you? Like that's, that could be there. And, and I think at that point, even if I can't diffuse it, the best I can, like, it's still good for me to just not put that second layer on there. Yes. Well, the second layer is just your mind Does that coming make sense? in. Yes, totally. That the second layer is your mind coming in to take charge. Like that's its that's its backdoor approach to go. Oh, we got him. Now I know how to make him hyper vigilant yeah. and anxious. We're gonna now judge the fact that he can't even work it through. But listening to you, right. like, yes, what helped me with that stuff that I couldn't let go that I'm also trained in actually is something called EMDR. Have you ever heard of it? I've heard of it. Yeah. It's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And basically the idea is that when we have an emotionally traumatic experience, which could range anywhere from like being a veteran of war to um, a bully said something to you when you were 10, that could be emotionally traumatic. And mm. it, it gets stored on the right side of your brain, which is your emotional side. But then later on, when we're trying to release it, we're often using the left side, our language lists and logic. Even in talk therapy, we're just trying to talk it out, talk it out. And what they found with rape victims and veterans of war, they tried this EMDR where they connected their right and left side of the brain while they were re-experiencing the trauma. And as they did that, they were able to release things that they never were able to get to in other ways. And it's not invasive. When I say connect your right and left, it's called eye movement because you can do that by moving your eyes back and forth. You can also do that by tapping on your legs, or you can do that through having sounds alternate between your right and left. And that could be really good for you because some of that stuff that just feels like I can't release it, your brain wants to, it just doesn't know how. So giving it access the brain does not want to be going around and around and around. It, it's just maybe stuck. Mm. Yeah, that. thank you. That, that's the most succinct and uh, accessible way I've heard EMDR put. Thank you for that. Because I've all I had in my head before that is that I need to do it, but I didn't know why. It's just been recommended by enough people. Yeah, what I noticed about myself, for example, is that I'm very analytical and I'm very logical. I went through um, a home invasion when I was 12. It was really traumatic. And in some ways it was affecting um, how I sleep, um, when I get scared about being alone, things like that. But if, you, if I went to a regular therapy session, there was no way for me to access the fear that I felt when I was 12 in the home invasion, my body has blocked me off mm. from feeling that presently, even though there are things in my life that are happening that I intellectually know, or I knew that were connected to that. By doing EMDR, what happened is by getting stimulated in that way and being like, and just sitting with the, like the feeling came up. I was, I was back in wow. the feeling of when I was ter terrified in this room and I didn't, and I didn't even know I could have access to that. So I, I've seen that for myself and then it released. And I really, what I have been less afraid since then. And so, so the more it just, yes, it's more feeling based. It's, and it's with the idea that we actually know how to heal ourselves in those kind of sessions. I'm much less verbal with my own clients in EMDR sessions than I am in regular sessions, because when I'm in EMDR mode, I'm not trying to logic you out of your negative self talk. I'm letting your brain have access to what you need to help you heal because it's, it's inside all of us is what I believe. You're the expert on you. I mean, that kind of highlights the notion of where do thoughts come from? We, we assume that we are, the master of these thoughts as we're thinking something, I need to do this, I need to do that, holy shit, I can't believe that happened, that it's some intentional process commanded yes. by some CEO that you are inside your own head. And, and when in reality thoughts, they can come from so many different places that we're not aware of bodily feelings, as you said. And so this is something that, that gets to the heart of that. 
It's way more chaotic in terms of where thoughts emerge than, than what we think. I, I a thousand percent agree. There's a, there's a sign in my office that says, don't believe everything you think because thoughts come from our survival mechanism. They come from some reality we made up when we were five based on having a crappy experience with our mother. They come from right. the trauma. They come from good things too. But I think the reason I like meditation and I like EMDR is the more that we're able to strip down what's our survival mechanism, negative mind talking, and what's our true self talking. And for me at this point, mm. there's a real big distinction. I can feel when something's coming from the best part of me that's good for me that I'm following and what's coming from just some bad experience I had when I was 12, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would think another illusion at the heart of this, and this is something that I, you know, will take me a lifetime to really get any kind of handle on is, is the nature of self, this assumption that there's a conscious eye that's continuous throughout my moment to moment experience. When in reality, these thoughts, there, there's no separate, there is no, there are only the thoughts there, there is no thinker. And that that's, a confusing uh, mind fuck of an idea. Yes. And if, if you're listening, just maybe look up the, the nature of self in terms of uh, Buddhism. I think at the end of this episode, maybe I'll include a link because I, I it, it's really, it's over my head to be honest. Um, but, but it's an important idea and it's posited to be at the foundation of so much suffering is, is the sense of self that we carry. When in yeah. reality, the thoughts are just these arising things, even the thoughts of like, I need to do this. Well, who's the I? It's just, that's just a thought that's coming up. It, it's hard. I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm getting worked up just trying to explain it and I'm not really You're sure. You're leveling it up because <laughs> I normally in a podcast just take it to like get to your true self, but you're right. Ultima I agree with you. Ultimately, if we take it to the next level, nothing is permanent. We've developed all these stories about who we are, but we're just the composite of all of our experiences, our environment. So we get to be whoever we, we can reinvent who we are and be whoever we want to be in each moment. Any moment is a new starting point. Yeah, that, that's a nice way to make it less imposing of, of a concept. Uh, so one of the things... One of your uh, writings that caught my attention just because I'm so obsessed with decision-making, obsessed with, plagued by, you wrote an excellent article on your website, help, I can't make a decision. So have you struggled with decision-making personally? Um, I think everyone does to some, to some extent, but I would say I wrote that article because it just happened to be in my practice that week that like three or four of my clients had giant decisions to make. And I was helping and I was like, oh, everyone needs to know this because because I just take it as a sign. If a bunch of people come to me at once asking me about the same problem, then I should probably write it down. So that one was more about my clients than it was about me specifically. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, just to give you some background, this, this will probably be um, one of many episodes where I touch on my decision-making anxiety. I, a lot of times it's, should I get a pour over coffee? Should I get an espresso? They're small and they're laughable, yet something like that, I'll like kind of walk back and forth in front of the coffee shop for like a couple minutes. and Or I will, you know, I, I have a pretty flexible schedule. So, okay, should I go? I mean, this was maybe pre-COVID. There was more options to play with and and torture me. Like, should I go to the park? Should I go to a movie? Okay. How should I kind of have, you know, I'm a creative person, so there's time I need to be writing. So it's like a lot of it's just this obsessive quality of like, well, what's the perfect week? How can I, maybe Monday and Tuesday, I'll just meditate or no, let's write every day. Let's, or no, maybe I should just travel. Let's just get a place in Maine for a week. So many options. And I'll just, and, and I think underlying this obsession is this belief that a one of them is right and will free me yes. from all of my suffering and that's that's something that i've had to that's an assumption that i've had to really question recently 
well, I think that's that's a great starting point because there is no right. There are lots of there are hundreds of options that you could take every day. We're making all these tiny little decisions moment to moment. And I go, I, I like to tell myself and my clients, we just want to know where we're trying to get to in the, in the big picture. And as long as we're making progress towards that on a daily basis, the rest of it doesn't matter. The whatever coffee you pick and whether you how right. many hours you are creative, it doesn't matter. For people like you, I often assign them, I don't know if you've tried this, but I often assign them to make a really detailed schedule where a bunch of their decisions are already made. What are you yeah. gonna, You're going to meal plan out, your work schedule's planned out, so that you can see if you can find some relief in just going, I already commit, you get one day to obsess about it when you're yeah. making the schedule, and then for the rest of the week, it's not up to you. You've already decided what you're doing. Right. Because one of the main maybe insights I've had over the course of grappling with all of this is just this idea that, so, okay, option, let's take an example, simple park. Should I walk in the park? Should I watch a movie? Which option is right? Well, whichever option I do with wholehearted presence will have, will have been the right one. That's right. And that's something I landed on probably five years ago. And still, I, I still just ruminate, but hopefully for a shorter duration each time I ruminate. And I think that's a little bit true. It, it's, you know, if you maybe approach it instead of making the right choice, making the choice that I'm making the right choice, or no, there's a better way to, instead of choosing right, make whatever you choose right. That's right. Meaning just breathe as much life into it. And, and when you're truly present, that's when you're the most alive you can possibly be. And then that's when you're living as rightly as you could possibly be, even if you're in an, you know, a less than desirable circumstance or environment, if you're alive to it, you a are living. A thousand percent. I think that people, our minds trick us into thinking that our happiness is going to come from external things. And they kind of think like maybe it's 90, 10, like 90% of my happiness is going to come. If I have the career I want, the romantic partner, I want the amount of money I want, the body I want. And 10% is going to come from how I relate to that. But I actually think it's reversed. I think 90% of your experience of feeling happy and fulfilled comes from how you, how you relate to what's existing for you in all those other categories. Because I've seen people mm. who have lots of money, an awesome career, mm. a beautiful partner, and they are anxious as shit. And then I've seen right. people who are living paycheck to paycheck, don't know what their career wants to be, haven't met their romantic partner, but has a nice group of friends and they're, and they're living in the perspective of here and now, and they're completely fulfilled. So I, I just think that's what your mind's tricking you into thinking you're going to make some external thing. That's what's going to make you happy. But what you're saying is you realize it's all internal. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like that you say 90, 10 and not a hundred zero because no. I, you know, we can't lie to ourselves that certain experiences I'd much rather have a nice apartment where I could kind of spread out and have places to sit, comfortable places to sit where I'm not on top of my girlfriend every step I go versus, you know, a shoebox that's grimy or whatever. And, and so we, I mean, it gives me room to maybe make choices and seek out better circumstances, but, but it posits that, the difference isn't as much as I think it is. Like I, right now I have a day job that I don't love and I often catch myself thinking how amazing my life would be if I was just a full-time artist. And it's it's not totally wrong. It's, it, there's nothing maybe wrong with pursuing being a full-time artist. It's just that the degree to which I think they're different isn't necessarily true. I think that's right. and And I think... What uh, people get really scared when I talk about this because they think I'm saying surrender to having, like not getting the things you want in life. But I'll say is the more I get my internal right, the more I'm inspired and motivated to go after all the other, th create a successful business, be connected to my yeah. husband, create more money so I can snowboard more. Like it, right. it just, 
propels me forward, but all, but the, the joy is in the journey. Like that's like, we think you think you're going to get to this, your mind's telling you, I'm going to get to this higher state of fulfillment when I'm only being an artist. But a lot of, I love this podcast called how I built this, which talks about, yeah, it talks, it's these guys like who founded these big companies like Whole Foods. I love the Whole Foods one because the guy's like, well, I just wanted everyone to have organic vegetables and everyone thought he was crazy. And, but that was his dream. And slowly he built it and built it and built it. And then Whole Foods became Whole Foods, but it wasn't, he's not, I get the impression every time that all the joy was on his journey to getting to what Whole Foods is now more than actually getting there. So your journey on the way to like, oh, now I have to work a little less. Now I get to be a little more creative. How did I, now I got the apartment that's a little bit bigger. Like your relationship to that will drastically affect your experience of it. Right. Because we have to consume experience. We can't consume mental concepts. That's the difference. Yeah. And, And this is where mindfulness helps. I mean, I, and this is where mindfulness helps is probably something I'm going to repeat on this podcast 10,000 times and I just have to be okay with that. But, but it's true because it, to me, it's, it's so, it, it permeates every aspect of well-being and, and maybe wisdom on what the hell is happening inside someone's head is just attention. So I can have this story of like, I was born to be an artist and I'll be miserable until the day, uh, you know, this, this soul sucking number crunching job is the bane of my existence. I could have these stories and identities. But the other day, I noticed something like, because I, I have a little bit of a writing quota. And so I was writing a little bit in the morning. And and then I switched over to do just some um, Excel stuff for my job. And if I was, and I actually, when I was actually paying attention, I don't know that I enjoyed the writing any more than, in fact, on that day, I was just comforted by the numbers. Yes. And, and if I put down the stories, it's like, holy shit, you know, and, it, and it's kind of scary to put that down because like, what does that mean then? Does that mean I could just be happy as an, as an accountant, you know, a no name person? And in a way, possibly, yes. Doesn't mean I have to be, but what if I had to be, I'd be happy. That? Yeah. Like a... So it's, 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 yeah. It's, so it's acting, you know, the art has to mean something to me. It, it, it's not just meaning, it, it doesn't mean something to me just because it means that I'm not a mediocre no-name accountant because I fear that so much because I have to be something, you know, I have to be great. I call that the difference between ego goals and true self goals, because the more you're making goals based on that, your external audience or how you think you're like, if I do this, then I'm going to feel happy when you're making goals from there. It's really hard to motivate yourself and it's really hard to get, get where you want to go. But when you're, keyed into your actual inspiration. Oh, it's exciting to pursue this. Oh, this is interesting. I'm passionate about this. Right. Things just unfold is what I noticed. Yeah. And then, I mean, I always hear this uh, kind of counter argument of, well, if we're maybe not as driven or goal oriented, or if I wasn't as like, I have to be an artist, you know, I can't be mediocre. Well, then you know, it helps us because it helps us achieve our goals. I mean, that's, that's kind of the argument you always hear about, well, no, self, some self-hatred is good because then why else, you know, I wouldn't have become whatever millionaire uh, founder of X company. But, but my answer to that is that, well, you're just, the whole mechanism with which you're evaluating progress might change when you open yourself up to these processes. So yeah. like you're, you're, you're less likely to achieve goals that were built by a shitty blueprint yeah what yeah it totally makes sense and there are people you're right that become successful based on ego goals it's just i'm gonna for me personally my ultimate goal is to have an interesting as interesting fulfilling and exciting life as possible Mm. so i do i care about becoming the number one most world famous therapist no no i just care about about helping people, getting inspired to share things with them, getting to go on snowboarding, you know? So 
so maybe, maybe because of that as the goal, I might, I might become huge. I might, I might not, but that, that doesn't matter. So I would say for the people who've gotten really big places based on their ego, was the journey fun? Are you happy yeah. and fulfilled now? Because to me, that's the goal. Right. And, and if we're talking about self-hatred helping us achieve goals, then the question is, well, why were those goals set to begin with? You know, were they, were they set with the belief that achieving them would grant us a certain worthiness? And does that mean that currently we feel unworthy? Because if, if the unworthiness slash shame, and, and shame is something I talk about in, in pretty much every episode along with self, uh, because I guess, yeah, I, I, I'm a little self-conscious, but I, yeah, I think these things are truly foundational to so many things. But if we're, if the shame is controlling us, then it's going to be there regardless of our circumstances or achievements unless we work on it directly. Yes. And and I think for me, it's it's the same undercurrent with decision-making. This, this theater pit that, that unless I choose right, I'm, I fall into this pit of shame and I'm a piece of shit and, and deep down that's what I fear I am, but somehow making the wrong choice will, will help my piece of shitness self-actualize. And, and I just use self-actualization in a negative way, but, but you know what I mean. Yes. I, so I think bringing up right, wrong is a, is a great way to, to look at it because I don't really think, I mean, on a, when you're talking about the kind of decisions you're making and the kind of decisions that people are coming to me with, should I change careers? What kind of coffee should I get? Should I get divorced? Should I have mm. children? There is no right and there's no right and wrong. It's just figuring out what you think at this moment in time is going to be the best for you. And sometimes you might choose something and then a month later go like, oh shoot, I think I wish I did the other the other way. But I was like, that's okay. Like that's yeah. part, like sometimes you can't know until you go and if you until you try and if you mm. take the pressure off to just go it's not about right and wrong and it's not about whether I'm going to be fulfilled or not fulfilled. It's just about me making a decision about what I think is best in this given moment in time and I'm always yeah. going to be mindful of 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 that. Right, right. And that's all we can do. Yeah, and the, and the payoff and the penalty aren't as dramatic as we're making them. Because, again, it's like this this place of either A, ultimate fulfillment, or B, uh, complete inadequacy and failure are just two maybe mental loops that I keep bouncing back and forth between. Yeah. Trying to prove them one thing, avoid the other thing. But what are these things to begin? I think, I think maybe loosening up these two polar energies, gravitational pulls that yeah, knock me around every day is, is maybe foundational to the experience of relieving decision anxiety. Yes. Now, that was a mouthful. Did that? I think that made sense, right? Totally made sense. Cool. Thank you. So we're about out of time. I, I'd love to invite you now to, if there are any closing thoughts or advice you'd like to leave the listeners with. In any time of anxiety, I like to break things down to not looking too far in the future. So if we're really anxious, then we're just going to focus on what can we do today to make it feel like we're moving forward or we're connecting deeper or we're making progress on our career or we're taking care of our physical body. And, and we're going to ask ourselves that question every day. And then we're going to stick to those commitments because the more that you show yourself that what you say you do, like then the more you believe that you have the ability to create the future you want, the more you say, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z and don't do it. The more you kind of say, and it doesn't even matter. I'm stuck. I'm not going to get anywhere. Nothing's possible. So that, that's what I'm working with a lot is creating structure in an unstructured time and creating mini goals that are achievable on a daily basis. I love that. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for your time. This has been a pleasure. You're welcome. All right. That was Jesse Giantarafe. Thank you again to Jesse. 
I mentioned in the episode I'd, I'd share a resource on... There's the jackhammer. Can you hear it? It's outside my apartment. I'm going to say you... It's funny because, like, I'm thinking of it as being an interruption, but th this is the interruption right now is what I'm saying. Anyway, let's focus, Sagar. I mentioned in the episode uh, sharing an article about this this illusory sense of self we carry that, that to me is at, or to many people, is at the core of so much suffering. And it's an intimidating concept, and I, I love Buddhist teacher Jack Cornfield. That's Cornfield spelled with a K. He has an article on his website called Identification with Self. And I love Jack because he's able to explain concepts in a very uh, grounded way using plain English. And, and so check that out if you're interested in learning about the illusory nature of self. It's a good kind of intro to that concept. So that's all I got for this episode. As always, theanxietylab at gmail.com or Instagram, S-A-G-A-R-B-O-T. I'm always happy to hear from you in any capacity. And if you could do one more thing before you're done, uh, just rate and review me if you haven't yet done so. Again, as I said last time, I'm not asking for ad money with the exception of potentially Mod Cup. If you want to throw me uh, your latest Kenyan roast, I'd be happy to give you another shout out on a future episode. With that exception, though, I'm not doing ad revenue, no Patreon. Uh, the one way you can support me, though, is to just throw me a rating at the Apple Store. Most of you have an Apple ID, and it doesn't take long. Cool. Until next time, thank you so much, and uh, please be kind to yourself. Bye.